Welcome to Spooky Psychology with Megan and Lauren. Hello and welcome back to Spooky Psychology with Megan and Lauren. I am Megan. And I am Lauren, the counterpart. Welcome back, guys. How are we doing? How's, how's everyone feeling? Hope everyone's hanging in out there. Hopefully. Hopefully you guys are doing good. Yeah. That's, that's what I want for hear. you. Yeah. Thank you, everybody. Um, I, I feel like here and there we keep getting really nice um, messages and comments of people just enjoying the podcast. So please know that always makes us feel good to see. Um, and it's nice hearing from you guys, especially nice messages like that. We do. We appreciate the... Uh, nice compliments we appreciate hearing from you guys quick shout out to i believe her name was hannah yes it was hannah hannah uh thanks so much hannah gave us a very lovely review and mentioned that we have uh what was it that we inspired her to go after a degree in psychology yeah that's what she said after after she's done with high school which is super cool Mm -hmm. um i love that please keep us updated how that's going and if you've been applying to programs let us know if you get in one that you like it's a very exciting time we will celebrate you getting into college i don't know if you're applying this year or next year don't not sure how old you are but whenever you get into college let us know we'll shout it out very proud uh and also just big congratulations to all of our listeners who are graduating high school or college in the next few weeks or grad school Uh, we're proud of each and every one of you it's a huge accomplishment i know a lot of times like schools can't do like the big graduation ceremonies but just know regardless of how it's celebrated it's a huge deal and you should be very proud of yourself yes definitely it's a lot of hard work so way to go way to go everyone doing things achieving your dreams achieving so much for all of you and you know what shout out to everyone who's just surviving right now you guys Mm -hmm. are doing great too yep if if your goal is to get out of bed and you did that good for you that's awesome way to go um so just a couple things before we get started uh quick correction thank you for pointing this out lovely listener i believe it was sarah mm-hmm. uh for pointing out in uh our one of our last few episodes i believe it was in the baby snatchers i did mention that by definition you cannot uh have more than one personality disorder as it turns out there's been more research and that is incorrect you uh the dsm does not have anything that excludes having more than one personality disorders i think a lot of the professors i had had always made the argument that if you have symptoms of more than one you would have mixed personality disorder but there is nothing in the definition that says that you cannot have more than one so yep. i was wrong um and, and I, think I think that they're moving towards more of a spectrum for that right They are moving more towards a spectrum to that apparently it's a hotly debated concept in the world um if you can have more than one or what the proper way to diagnose personality disorders is some people make the argument that because to have a personality disorder you have to have like a fixed rigid and ongoing level so some clinicians will make the argument that if you have more than one then you don't have a fixed enough behavioral pattern to technically meet criteria for any individual one so it's an interesting diagnostic mystery but 
by definition, you can't have more than one. And apparently uh, some of the research suggests that a lot of people do technically meet criteria for more than one, which is why they're looking to change the criteria. So thank you for pointing out that I was wrong. I appreciate that. It's always good to know and learn and double check on research for things that are not in my area of expertise. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we never claim to know everything. And it's always helpful to, you know, keep up with the research, keep up with the times, keeps us young and fresh. Yes, and also, we're just definitely wrong sometimes. I think Lauren and I are both kind of more trauma therapists, and there's lots of other things under psychology yeah. that are just not what we practice and not what we go to, you know, trainings for. So, not experts on everything. Right. We're just doing our best here. Uh, one other housekeeping thing is for the time being, uh, because of multiple just personal factors for both myself and Lauren about our lives and work and multiple busy things going on for the next few months, we are going to have to go down to one episode a month. Um, we just keep hitting situations where we have to take breaks or go longer between recording and it's messing up the schedule. So just for the time being, this isn't a permanent decision. This is just probably over the summer. We're just going to spring and summer. We're going to have to go down to one episode a month. And as soon as we know more about the future scheduling, we'll let you know. That's just a call we had to make so that we can keep putting out episodes, but at a pace that's just more doable for right now. Yep, that's right. So we appreciate your guys' patience and hanging in there. And I know I know somebody had wrote in that um, they're, they don't want to binge listen because they didn't know when the next one was like coming out. And I'm sorry. And we appreciate that you guys like our content that much. Um, but this, this is what we're going to do for now. Um, and hopefully in the future we can maybe put out more. We'll yeah. see. We're just going to have to play it by ear. Um so we are sorry. We know that might be disappointing to some people. It's just, you know, working for me multiple jobs or, you know, just one job. And, you know, we have lives and there there's just too much going on for both of us right now to keep doing to keep doing every other week and keeping the quality mm -hmm. up and our mental health and stress levels in an appropriate yeah. place i'm way too stressed out i'm having a terrible week everyone so you know just uh if you hear my rage coming no. through that's why <laughs> coming through your speakers yeah. do you feel it yeah. yeah so so i apologize in advance i have a pig inside that might be squealing throughout the episode we will do our best Dora just wants to be heard she feels yep, she's got a voice she doesn't think she has enough of a presence on the podcast apparently uh -uh. so yeah she's a neat girl uh, the last one in our series on kidnapping all right let's get into it and this is more adult abductions and human trafficking that's right um so obviously we've been talking about a lot of things um, that happen to babies and children, but you know we definitely wanted to create some space for adults too. Uh, through our research, something we definitely found out was that there isn't a lot of research done on adult kidnappings, whether it be you know 
as hostages, Mm -mm. uh, human trafficking, stuff like that. Just not a lot of information. Um, There is something that I found, though. So the FBI's National Crime Information Center, so the NCIC, released in 2019, and their missing person and unidentified person statistics, that they had nearly 87,500 active missing person records. So youth under the age of 18 accounted for 35% of records, and 44% of the missing records are people under 21. So if, you know, youth is being accounted for for 35%, there is a huge Mm -hmm. chunk of that that you know, we can conclude our adults. Um, so it's very interesting that it's not researched more often. And, you know, if there are people in grad school and looking for something to research, um, this is, this might be a hot topic. Right, definitely. And I think we tend to think of kidnapping with kids, but it can happen at any age. And also, just good to point out, you know, missing an unidentified person absolutely does not mean that these people that, you know, there were 87,500 missing, like, kidnapped people or in right. danger people, um, especially with adults. Adults are allowed Take to off. just abandon yep. their lives and go somewhere else if they want to, and their family might report them missing if they do that, um, or friends or coworkers. So we don't know where all these people are. Right. Or you, or you might consider, like, you know, elders that kind of, like, wander off from their homes. You know, like, stuff like that happens all the time, too. Actually, in St. Charles, we did just have a uh, a elder, an elderly man, uh, leave his home. But they found him, and he's nice and safe. Oh, they did? Yeah, he was high risk with some memory issues. Um, so they were pretty worried, but they did find him safely. So that was a heartwarming thing this week. Everybody was very worried about Bob. Bob, glad to hear you're safe. Yeah, I know. I saw that, like, on a lot of, like, the groups and stuff. So I'm happy he's back home. Bob has been safely returned. Good. Um, And a lot of people who go missing do come back. It's, you know, like we said in kind of the youth episode, a lot of it is runaways. A lot of teenagers will run away and do end up coming back or getting found safely. But, you know, human trafficking is a thing and murder is a thing and just dying of exposure or other accidents is also a thing so you know not everyone comes home not everyone is safe sometimes it is a really bad situation there also are cases of people who are in abusive relationships purposefully going missing as a way to escape that that is an option too sometimes it is a calculated move and very strategic That's absolutely right. There's a bunch of different reasons. And, um, you know, there's some research out there. But again, you know, we'd love to see more. We would love to see more of those statistics to kind of help us fully conceptualize like what the actual number is of people or specifically adults that go missing, stay missing um, for, you know, scary reasons like the ones we're about to talk about. Yeah, and I don't know about you, I looked for it. I could not actually find good stats on adult abductions not at all. and how frequently this is. Not at, not all. at all. It's not out there. Um, at least from our research, the two of us couldn't really... Again, we found stuff on, like, this many missing and this many suspected, but not, you know, hard numbers on how many adults go kidnapping, how many are involved in human trafficking. Of course, there's not going to be exact numbers because it's a global issue, but... Not a lot of guesses either. Yeah, and I mean, you know, keeping in mind, too, that, like, when we're doing research, sometimes it does get split into different countries, um, just different regions, and sometimes it's hard to kind of collectively 
put a statistic on things. Um, it sounds like they're a little bit more advanced in their research with this in Europe. We'll, we'll kind of get into that. We'll get into more detail. Yeah, I mean, even if you, if you Google kidnapping statistics, I mean, for literally prevalence under the kidnapping in the United States adults Wikipedia, the first thing is kidnapping statistics for U.S. adults contained remain elusive. The crime of kidnapping is not separately recorded by the Uniform Crime Report. So, they, they, we don't know if anybody has good statistics, if you found stuff that your country puts out, mm -hmm. or if you know any researchers and you know, please let us know. Yeah. Just because we couldn't find it doesn't mean it doesn't exist anywhere. It means we couldn't find it. So, if you have it, let us know, but we could not find it. Absolutely. Especially, you know, folks like at like universities and stuff. Like, if you want to comb through like your university libraries and articles that you have available, sometimes those are really good sources of information. But yeah, from what we found, it's hard to track. It's really difficult. Um, but yeah, so you might be wondering, like for the percentage of adults who do go missing for scary reasons, why would an adult get abducted? So there's several different reasons. So one um, is ransom. So this is leveraging the hostage to receive payments from their family, employer, or country in exchange for release. Um, and this is a major source of income for criminal gangs. So we've all kind of heard of kidnap for ransom, people being held hostage in exchange for money. Um, just like I explained before, you know, a lot of times we hear about the ones where, you know, the family has to talk to the kidnapper and, and organize a way to get their family member back. But really, this happens with employers. This happens, um, you know, between countries. Uh, this, this is a very interesting thing. And there's actually a bunch of different types of ransom kidnappings that I didn't know about before. Um, so I got this information from osac.org, Overseas Security Advisory Council. So that's who they are. Um, so there's different types. So there's kidnap for ransom. So this is a traditional one that I mentioned. There's something called tiger kidnapping or proxy bombings. So it differs for, from kidnapping for ransom in that the hostage or, recipi or recipient is coerced into performing a desired action for the kidnappers. So that might be like opening a vault of a bank that they work at, mm -hmm. unlocking an office after hours so the kidnappers can go in and get what they want, um, or planting or detonating a bomb. Hmm. So that's what tiger kidnapping or proxy bombings might look like. Okay. There's something else called express kidnapping. So I guess this is common in Latin America and parts of Africa. Um, so this is relatively short term and it only involves a victim and the criminals so the criminal will threaten the victim and take them to an atm to withdraw the maximum amount of cash um, and the kidnapping generally ends when the victim can no longer withdraw money so yeah i mean i i didn't think of that as like kidnapping but totally applies um i'm sure it happens mm -hmm. more than we think about yeah i've definitely that that one i have heard about happening quite a bit yeah Makes sense. Um, another one is political and ideological kidnapping. So mm -hmm. these are potentially the most dangerous forms um, due to the wide range of motives and groups that could possibly be involved. So the kidnapper, kidnappers in these cases target victims for their 
political or ideological impact. So this could include motivations such as using the hostage to swap for prisoners, um, negotiating withdrawal of security forces in a certain area, or for propaganda purposes. Um, so, so yeah, so I mean, I'm sure we can think of tons of situations where this might happen. Um, but yeah, especially like in politics and, you know, just important people in politics getting kidnapped, um, just to kind of negotiate whatever they, they want. Um, I'm sure this has happened a lot throughout the years, maybe not in the United States, but perhaps in other countries. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, another one is something called virtual kidnapping. So this method is unique in that it doesn't actually involve physical kidnapping and it closely resembles a scam. So the criminal calls the target's family or employer claiming to have their family member and promising to release them upon receipt of payment, which is usually a smaller, more manageable amount to increase the chances of a quick payment. Um, usually the kidnapper will have a accomplice and they pretend to be the hostage crying for help in the background, which is like really messed up. Some criminals have also used information gathered from social media or observation to make the threat appear more genuine. So, I mean, I've heard of this in a smaller degree. Um, you know, just like people like reaching out an email being like, hey, you know, I, I'm like a long lost aunt and I need help and, you know, stuff like that. But I never really considered it kidnapping. But um, to this degree, if they have an accomplice that's pretending to be this member of their family that's like crying in the background, like that's horrifying. Yeah, I mean, and that, um, weirdly enough, my mom actually once did uh, get like a weird scam oh. email about her dad. That he was, like, stranded in another country and needed help. Oh, and gosh. she was literally, like, physically with her dad when she oh, got the God. email. <laughs> so, like, like this he is... was totally fine. She was like, yeah, I'm li literally with my dad right now. Like, he's not. So that, that kind of stuff has gone on. But I think it's interesting to consider, especially as technology does improve, you can convincingly Photoshop oh, or yeah. alter a video if you're capable to make it look like pictures taken from social media. Like, you could potentially actually provide evidence that's convincing yeah. that you actually have the person. I mean, I guess I would say if, you are, if you're getting pictures or videos that... Uh, you know, a loved one has been kidnapped, probably try calling their cell phone first. <laughs> just maybe. to see. Like, you know, may maybe double check because, yeah, it could definitely be a virtual kidnapping where they're just trying to convince you and trying to get some money. But you're, well, I would wonder if they've ever done that to somebody and, like, much like when my mom got the email about her father being stranded somewhere in Europe. Uh, I wonder how often that's happened where, like, the person was physically with their family members and they get this call that's like, we have your son. And they're like, he's he's literally right here. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure that happens quite a bit. Like, there's, you know, it's kind of a, a risky move. Um, but yeah, that's kind of what's scary, though, about, like, social media is that, people can find all this information about you, very, you know, specific information. It can, you know, convince somebody who, you know, maybe isn't familiar with social media or familiar with this type of scam um, 
to believe like oh gosh like how else would this person know about like their kids or their car or whatever yeah so just something to be social media terrifies me it it scares me too makes me uncomfy um so yeah so that's different types of ransom kidnappings um Another reason why adults get abducted, of course, unfortunately, is sexual abuse and for sexual abuse purposes. Another one is human trafficking. So we'll kind of get into more about that. Um, But there's several different kinds. Um, There's forced labor, sex trafficking, organ trafficking, and debt bondage. Um, So debt bondage, in case you don't know, differs from forced labor and that the victim typically enters into the arrangement willingly in in an attempt to pay off some sort of loan. The victim then becomes trapped in the cycle of increasing and arbitrary loan amounts and no possibility of ever actually paying it off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that would be definitely cases I've heard of, of people wanting to come to the United States and a trafficker being like, oh, we'll take you and then you can just work at, you know, my business for X amount of time to pay off the cost to get you in and then we'll let you go. So they're like, yeah, sounds great. And they do actually agree to come and then the trafficker does not let them go after the amount of time. Yep, yep, which is an unfortunate cycle that people get in. I don't know if anyone saw this documentary or if you saw it, Megan, but there is this documentary, um, gosh, I can't remember what it was called, but it was basically about, like, the seafood industry and, like, Seaspiracy. Seaspiracy. Yeah, I've heard about it. I haven't watched it. Okay. Because, like, there's basically, like, a piece of it where (sighs) there's, like, these people that work on these boats, like, for years, and it really does sound like forced labor or some sort of, like, debt bondage situation. It's really scary. Well, and it is also kind of impossible to know with a lot of the products we consume how much human trafficking, forced labor, and exploitation is occurring. Because, I mean, we're not going to all of the facilities all the way around to check, so you never really know. You never know, which is spooky and something to think about. So just a little bit about human trafficking. This is all from humanrightsfirst.org. And so human trafficking is a human rights violation that involves the practice of holding another person in compelled service by force, fraud, or coercion. It's also important to know that, you know, it is force, fraud, and coercion when it comes to adults. With kids, you don't have to prove force, fraud, or coercion in order for it to be human trafficking, particularly in sex trafficking. A minor, pretty much any time where you are, you know, forcing the sexual exploitation of a child for money, it is trafficking all the time. Um, That was something that I just learned. I did a couple human trafficking trainings back when I was interviewing on how to interview um, human trafficking survivors and all of that. So I have some training in this, not an expert, but pretty much um, just to make it clear, because this is a verbally important thing, there is no such thing as child prostitution. Nope. That is not a thing. Not a thing. It's human trafficking of my. It's sex trafficking of minors across the board. Um, So that is just an important linguistic thing because I hate it when news articles are like, child prostitution. I'm like, with children, the definition is it's always 
trafficking with children if you are gaining monetarily from their sexual abuse. So, just throwing that out there. Um, And then a couple examples that Human Rights First gives of actual cases, which I think is so important. These are just brief overviews of some cases, all from the United States, because again, I think we don't always know the full necessarily, like, the full spread of what can be human trafficking, so I think these are just good, because they display the different types of human trafficking, what it actually looks like in the United States. So they say these cases portray a range of different kinds of exploiters, solo operators, to more organized criminal networks. They also demonstrate the wide range of industries where exploitation takes place. Some victims were subjected to force and coercions. Other were lured by fraud or false promises. Um, Some were from, you know, the United States. Some were trafficked uh, from overseas. So... A family in New Jersey recruited more than 20 girls and young women between the ages of 10 and 17 from Togo and Ghana, so countries in Africa, to braid hair for up to 14 hours a day for no pay at salons in Newark and East Orange. The exploiters found their victims by identifying families seeking to send their daughters to the United States for school or jobs. The victims' passports were taken and they were beaten or threatened if they did not return home immediately after work. Jeez. Yeah. So again, I mean, that would be a case of families willingly send because they were, you know, I'm sure told right. this was a better deal. Like under like, like false this- pretense of like, oh, we're going to help your children, you know, become United well, States citizens or whatever. Well, we'll educate them or give them jobs. Mm-hmm. And that's not what happens. No, it's gross. Um, yeah. So the next one is a group of 17 exploiters based in Ohio and Pennsylvania lured women and girls. One victim was 12 years old with promises of love and wealth and then trapped them and forced them to become prostitutes in a multi-state, they say prostitution ring, again, not prostitution, sex trafficking ring, uh, based at truck stops. So this kind of falls under love bombing in a sense which can be that is a common i'll talk more at some psychological tactics that are used but love bombing is one where traffickers will approach vulnerable young girls um or adult women who are not in good situations and promise to be like the family they never had take care of them we love you you're amazing we'll say all of these you know promising things and then that's not what happens. It's not like a good family. They don't let you keep the money that you're making. It's a very different situation. So the next one on our horrifying examples of human trafficking, a couple in Texas lured a widowed mother of six children from Nigeria to work in their home. Once she arrived, they confiscated her identification documents, restricted her movement, holding her in domestic servitude for eight years. The victim worked seven days a week for 16 hours a day for no pay. Oh my gosh. So again, a widowed mother of six children probably needed money to support her children was, I'm sure, offered oh, you can come here and just help us take care of the house and we'll pay this. And then they just took everything from her and they said virtually no pay. So it seems like she was given something, but not not enough. Not right. what she was promised, I'm sure. Right. 
Okay, and then we have a group of eight traffickers lured women and girls from Honduras and El Salvador to the United States on false promises, then compelled them to work in restaurants, bars, and cantinas to pay off the smuggling debt. Then they threatened to harm the victims' families back home if they attempted to escape. Lastly, traffickers hired smugglers to bring a group of victims to the U.S. from Mexico to work on farms in Colorado. When the victims arrived, they were told they owed debts of $1,300 each for their transportation cost. They were housed in a facility infested with insects and with undrinkable water and inadequate showers. Victims were forced to work 16 hours a day for six to seven days per week. Wow. These are terrible, but, I mean, real examples. Yeah, again, and that last one would be that debt bondage Lauren was talking about, where it's like, now you owe us all this money, and you're forced to work it off. A lot of times, you'll never actually work it off. They don't intend to have you work it off. Yeah, so, I mean, the next thing I wanted to get into is the mental health impact of human trafficking. Again, it's hard to find articles about adults involved in human trafficking. There's way more research about children who end up in human trafficking, but I did find a really great article um, that was a lit review that was conducted in 2019 by Stevens et al., meaning there are other authors, Um, Mm -hmm. and this was in the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, so kind of looking at it from a medical angle, which is super helpful too. So what they found was that in a study uh, by Hopper and Gonzalez in 2018, people trafficked into or within the United States had high rates of depression, so 71%, um, and PTSD, which was at 61%. It was interesting to note that although 61% met full criteria for PTSD, 91% of the sample, which was 131 people, endorsed various symptoms of PTSD. Um, 45% reported suicidal ideation and 59% endorsed comorbidity of PTSD and depression. So they met criteria for both of those things. Um, Something also that was important that I found in that was that a common characteristic of survivors with complex trauma, complex meaning that it wasn't just one traumatic event, it could be prolonged exposure to a traumatic event or many traumas that have developed over time, is that they show a greater intensity of symptoms and more frequent comorbidity, including depressive disorders, anxiety disorders, substance use disorders, and PTSD. Um, so, you know, you could see all of these things kind of combined and it's important to realize that because, you know, let's say you get somebody who comes in, you know, with some sort of substance use disorder, you know, understanding their background and understanding like, Hey, this person might be trafficked and this is how they're coping with the situation. Um, is definitely a more helpful and trauma informed approach. Also the comorbidities, again, you know, comorbidities, meaning like, multiple different disorders um, further complicate the mental health of trafficking survivors because they may present with multiple symptoms and behavioral difficulties. So it might make it confusing. Let's say if you do work in a hospital and somebody comes in um, with multiple maybe physical symptoms and certain behaviors, 
but complex trauma as a construct may better explain the affective dysregulation, the fragmentation of self, and the range of symptoms that affect all domains of a survivor's cognitive, emotional, and somatic behavioral and spiritual life. So again, the the trauma really explains even the somatic piece, because I I don't think a lot of people realize that um, after you've been through trauma, you go through a lot of physical symptoms as well and it can feel like oh you know all of a sudden I have like digestive issues and and this feels separate to me but it all could be intertwined. It is one of the things that I regularly uh, teach clients and Lauren I'm sure you're aware of this as well but our listeners might not be. Getting intense diarrhea after going into fight or flight is actually pretty common because your digestion stops and then restarts and it messes you up. So the amount of times when you're like screening for trauma if you ask like do you regularly deal with unexplained constipation and diarrhea people will be like wait, that's related? Like, yes, I do. And my doctors can't figure it out. But that, like, that's how strongly it actually impacts your body. Absolutely. There's so many somatic issues that come up from trauma. There's a bunch of research related to autoimmune disorders and the links to trauma, just how your body starts attacking itself, essentially. It's really fascinating stuff. But the biggest one is that digestive piece. Like, I've gotten so many clients before um, where they had, like, IBS or different, like, gastrointestinal issues, and they were completely unexplained. And so their doctor was like, you need to go talk to a therapist. And then they get sent to me, and I'm like, yep, I think this 100% is linked to your trauma. Let's work on that. Let's see if we can deal with it. And then miraculously, it goes away after getting some treatment. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's all intertwined, and it's just something to be aware of. Yeah. Yeah, so fascinating stuff. Um, But in this article, too, again, you know, it was a lit review. It was looking at a bunch of different studies. But something that was kind of in their conclusion, which I thought was really cool and something to bring up, is there is something called the HEAL Trafficking Kit. Um, So HEAL stands for Health, Education, Advocacy, and Linkage. And what this kit does um, is it's treating human trafficking as a public health issue. So it's giving these kits to um, like physical health providers. um, So like people at hospitals, nurses, stuff like that. And it helps you understand existing policies, procedures, how to have trauma-informed care, um, and how to talk to survivors, how to help survivors, how to screen and see, you know, is this person actively involved in um, any sort of trafficking? How can I get them help? How can I talk to them, you know, separately or individually? How can I use HIPAA, you know, to my advantage to help rescue this person? Mm-hmm. So it's a really cool thing, um, and I'll there's, I'll link the website. There's also um, training that I think is really cool for flight attendants mm-hmm. on recognizing human trafficking. And I did read several cases where it's so cool they get this special training to actually recognize the red flags. And flight attendants have like in the United States a specialized hotline they can call. So law enforcement can start investigating while they're still in the air and look more into it and then can actually 
um, you know, come and arrest people right at the airport and, like, kind of instantly do it. And I did read a few cases where flight attendants are like, yeah, I saw this boy and this girl on the plane who couldn't stop crying and the woman they were with, like, did not seem to care at all that the kids were upset and then it ended up actually being a trafficking thing, and she stopped it. And I think because of her call, they were able to, like, bust this human trafficking and rescue, I think they said, like, 30 or 40 children. So it is really impressive, some of the training that they're giving providers to recognize this and intervene. Yeah, I, I completely agree. That's that's amazing. And, yeah, there's, there's just so many things... Um, whether it's like in hospitals or airplanes or whatever, like we can all benefit from trainings and whenever it's like available, especially, um, you know, if it's free or low cost, like I definitely encourage people to learn what you can, see if you can help in some way. Okay, so the next thing I wanted to talk about um, is another piece of research that I found, again, you know, it's so hard (laughs) to find, you know, research for certain things um, related to the topic we're talking about today. But one of the hardest things is finding, okay, people who are perpetrators, who do engage in human trafficking and, you know, do this, why do they do this? You know, what's the psychology behind it? And there really isn't a lot of research that looks at that. I'm sure because people who are human traffickers probably aren't willing to, you know, talk about their mental health or talk about how they got to the place that they're at. But I did find one article um, and it's called Analyzing the Business Model of Trafficking and Human Beings to Better Prevent the Crime. Um, And this was Uh, conducted by OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. Um, It was a lit review. It was like 116 pages. Um, But basically, um, they did field research in a few participating states um, and an analysis of 25 cases. It included expert interviews and other material obtained from criminal justice experts, um, governmental, non-governmental reports, and from the media. So when there are arrests that were made and things like that, they utilized that too. Um, I know they were saying like, oh, a few participating states, but (laughs) there really is a comprehensive list. Um, There are 57. Mm -hmm. So it was like Albania... um, Croatia, Czech Republic, Denmark, France, you know, there's so many um, different places uh, helped with that. Um, So there was a lot of participation in this. Um, So what they found from their lit review um, was that there were individual or soloist trackers, traffickers, sorry, who exploit victims in different markets. So they are often those who import and export domestic servants most of the time. Um, A common soloist trafficker is something known as the lover boy uh, who through courtship promises love, marriage, all of these great things and then recruits and then psychologically manipulates or forces his victims into prostitution which really is sex trafficking. Um, this pattern has been documented in both the Netherlands and in the United States. Um, and it, you know, I'm sure linked to what Megan was talking about with the love bombing. Um, 
In their research, they found that men continue to outnumber women as traffickers in most police prosecution statistics. In a Russian study, 65% of those arrested for trafficking were men. Um, most traffickers are in the age groups of 18 to 24 and 30 to 40. And what's interesting, too, is they tend to be edu better educated than most offenders involved in crimes of violence. I do think that makes sense if they're using, um, you know, psychological means to manipulate people. That must mean that mm -hmm. they're probably better educated. Um, according to one Russian expert, younger criminals involved in trafficking are actually more likely to use violence, while the older ones prefer to be cunning and use deceit. So kind of an interesting find there. Um, cultural background influencing attitudes towards gender relations and emancipation is one of the big predictors in one's willingness to exploit women in sex trafficking. Most uh, Russian authorities actually reported that the majority of trackers are actually, or I keep saying trackers, traffickers <laughs> are first time offenders, which is really mm -hmm. interesting to me that, you know, like they're not having like a history of antisocial behavior. This is their like first time offense. I think that makes sense though, because I would guess they definitely would have some of the behavior, but human trafficking is such an advanced and strategic crime that it would make sense that the people who are trafficking humans are probably smart enough to have never gotten caught doing anything before. Yeah, like, in this research, only 4.4% of that study um, had been previously convicted of a crime. Like, that's such a small wow. percent. Um, there also were some theories about um, women who traffic. You know, again, a small amount of the population, but it's interesting, you know, to kind of hear what might um, influence this. So, in some countries, women's involvement in trafficking appears to be greater than their involvement in any other type of crime. Um, another thing they found was a decision to use women traffickers could be because if caught, they might have a quote-unquote lighter punishment, um, especially if they have children of their own. So, this might be, you know, manipulative in that way. And sometimes women who were once trafficked victims have worked their way up in the trafficking ladder to become involved as traffickers. So, for example, in an analysis of human trafficking cases, cases carried out by the Supreme Court of Kazakhstan, um, it showed that typically the majority of those who are engaged in recruitment are women who were once victims of trafficking since they are familiar with trafficking channels and know the right people. So, I mean, you know, you can kind of gather from that, you know, several different things, but it might, you know, be one of those things where it's prolonged trauma. It might have gotten so just confused in their brain that they feel like, you know, this is a way out or this is a way to feel more safe if I involve myself in actually trafficking um, other people. You know, it, it's really complicated, but I just thought this was a really interesting study that gives us some insight about the perpetrators. Mm -hmm. And using victims to find other victims is a common tactic. I think it's also good to question, like, how many people are involved in trafficking that are not the main person doing it that might also be victims themselves, but that is 
very common to use people you've already trafficked to help you gain access to more people. Now I'm just going to talk a little bit about some of the psychological tactics used by human traffickers. Um, This is all based on an article by Melissa Withers, PhD. And really what I found interesting is how many of the tactics are extremely similar to cult tactics, which makes perfect sense because they're tactics to get people to come with you and to control the behavior of others. So one of the main tactics is dehumanization. Um, And more from the viewpoint of, you know, trackers, victims are commodities. This is like a business arrangement. This is how they're making money. So they will dehumanize, I think, both to justify it to themselves and to, like, wear down their victims. They will constantly tell them that they're worthless, insignificant, that forgotten. They're already in a high level of emotional distress and, like, being told you have no control over your lives you know, a lot of times you might be, you you might not have any way out, especially if you've been internationally trafficked, like those examples, typically they take your papers, you have no identification, you don't know where you are, really very few options. So it's like you're helpless and you can't survive. And that can foster a sense of lost identity for the victims and also just dependency. You don't know where you are, you kind of have nothing. And sometimes it can go to the point where, they believe they're at fault because they were foolish enough to be tricked in the first place, so they deserve to be there. Yeah, it's really complicated. So another tactic is, you know, they're calling the worst case scenario, where they will constantly instill fears in their victims about the worst thing that could happen. They tell victims they'll be thrown out and homeless, If they try to escape or they might be arrested and thrown in jail, particularly in, um, you know, in the United States, the crime of prostitution, which I'm calling it that because that is the name of the crime, it is illegal. So you could get arrested even if you're trafficked for engaging in that behavior. And, you know, they'll tell you that they won't be able to prove that they were trafficked and that they're going to end up in prison Uh, maybe the victim's worst nightmare and they will avoid it because again it could bring shame and embarrassment to families it could be um really have negative consequences and depending on what country you're in obviously things are different everywhere but i mean especially if you're in a country where you don't really understand the laws you don't know how long you would be in prison for you don't know necessarily that if you can prove you were kidnapped you wouldn't go to jail like you may not be familiar with the legal system and how to navigate it so you would typically be afraid of being arrested so they'll tell you like oh if you ever try to leave i'll turn you over to the police um you know another one particularly used with um you know, if you've been internationally trafficked in the United States and you're not, uh, you know, if you're not a legal immigrant to the country that you're in, traffickers will tell victims that most people, including their doctors, will report undocumented immigrants resulting in arrest. So, again, kind of to ensure that silence with the health care providers. They'll also go with people to any clinic appointments, pose as family members, say that they're translating, and, you know, that may or may not raise suspicion. Luckily, like Lauren said, more doctors are being trained, but they will tell people that, yeah, you are going to get arrested for illegally being in the country. 
And again, with the worst case scenarios, you may not know how to actually navigate the legal system, advocate for yourself. So you'd be very afraid that you're going to get arrested and again, not know how to get out or how long you're going to be there because you're there illegally. So another tactic is keeping a close watch on the victims. So a lot of times in the traffickers, they may live directly in the same area where the victims are being held, but they'll typically live nearby dropping unannounced. Um, Having people constantly watch the trafficking victims so they know they have no alone time. They're isolated, um, oftentimes trying to isolate the different victims from each other if there's more than one so they can't talk openly about how they would escape and work together to keep them isolated and supervised enough that they really can't hatch a plan to escape. So another one that's counterintuitive, but I have heard a lot, is actually avoiding physical abuse. So I know Lauren mentioned that younger traffickers are more likely to use abuse, older traffickers are not, but a lot of traffickers will specifically avoid physical abuse and keep any criminal activity under the radar. So, you know, obviously if the victim is abused and has to go to a doctor's office, they might get reported. So they would typically try to make sure so no one reports it, that there are no visible injuries. Um, And I think it can also, you know, it helps that them stay under the radar, but also it, again, could help reinforce the whole, like, I'm the only thing you have, and I don't even beat you. I'm so nice to you. It can really work through that by avoiding physical abuse. Yep, definitely. So again, another one they listen is threats to call the police, the police, which I know I kind of mentioned in some of the previous ones. They often will take passports and any identification. Like I said, I know in the United States, prostitution is illegal, so human trafficking victims can and do get arrested for that. Um, But again, they may or may not have the knowledge that they can tell the police that they're being trafficked or that they've been abducted and all of that. Um, So they may or may not know how to get out of it. So they would be afraid of the police getting contacted or if they're there illegally because they were trafficked and then they think they're going to get arrested for that. And again, they might. You can still tell them that you were trafficked and like figure something out. Right. Um, so another one, uh, kind of like the last main thing we'll use, especially in um, debt bondage, is a hopeful timeline. So traffickers keep victims silent by offering them a glimmer of hope. For example, traffickers might offer victims a set time frame of servitude and then say, oh, like, a year, it'll be up as soon as... This time is up, but once it's up, they'll invent other deaths to be paid by the victim, inflating costs and all of these other things, but they will kind of continuously give a timeline to cause hope. Um, And some others that this article didn't do, you know, I think also just gaslighting victims is a big one, making them think that they're crazy and they're making up how bad it is, would be one that I would assume would be heavily used. Totally. 
And especially with the isolation, like telling people their families aren't looking for them, or you've typically told, you know, chosen victims who were vulnerable anyways. So kind of reinforcing like, oh, well, you know, your family's gonna, even though you were, say, sex trafficked, they might tell you like, oh, your family's gonna be so upset about what you're doing. They'll never take you back and kind of convince people that their families aren't looking for them. They don't care. They will also speak negatively about the loved ones and the protective factors in people's lives to make them think that there aren't other options. Yep, those are those are all super important. And I mean, I think aside from trafficking, like, you know, a lot of people use these tactics and just like mm-hmm. abusive situations too. Um, so very important to know and be aware of. One thing we wanted to do was talk about um stories of adults who have been abducted um for trafficking reasons or other reasons and i have a story i wanted to share um i just found it important you know a lot of times um we'll talk about like more uh well known or heard about stories but i just wanted to find one that wasn't well known Um, just to kind of give you guys an idea of what this could look like and shed some light on some people who may not get, um, recognition from what they've been through and how they overcome it. Um, so this person, or the story is about, um, someone named Louisa Karamova. So in her story, um, she was 22 and she had left home in Uzbekistan to work in Ash, Kyrgyzstan. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. Um, at the time, she didn't have a Kyrgyzstan ID or a university ID. And so therefore, she ended up really struggling to find work. So again, kind of tapping back into what we were talking before, a lot of people um, will leave their country looking for work, um, things like that. So this is what happened with her. Um, through searching for work, she ended up meeting a woman in the capital of Kyrgyzstan who offered her a waitressing job. So when she ended up going, um, to try to get the job from this woman where she was promised work, uh, she's quoted as saying, they held us in an apartment and took away our passports. They told us that we'd be photographed again for our new employment documents to be registered as waitresses it felt strange but we believed them so you know as people you know who you know assuming you haven't been through this before or you know any sort of traumatic events that resemble this you know you kind of assume best intent like okay i guess that kind of makes sense you know they're Mm -hmm. photographing us for new employment but feeling weird about the passports being taken away um After this happened, she and the other women that were in the apartment um, were flown to Dubai, and they were given fake passports. So once they landed, they were taken to a different apartment, and at this point, they were made to understand that they had to become sex slaves. So she was told she had to work at a nightclub, and that she needed to earn at least $10,000 by the end of the month, which is crazy you know that's an insane amount of money and um Mm -hmm. you know i'm sure it involved a lot of things that she probably was not comfortable with and this is definitely not a waitressing job you know coming to understand all these different things um for 18 months she worked at the nightclub one night a police car approached 
and she let the police arrest her instead of running away, um, figuring that it would be her best escape at the time. Um, but what ended up happening is she was deported back to Osh, and since her ID was fake, she ended up spending a year in jail. Um, she said she filed a police report, and three of the traffickers were actually captured, which is a positive thing. Mm-hmm. Um, then, unfortunately, what happened is after being released from prison, she was left to live on the streets, unemployed. So, released from prison, again, back to square one, I don't have a job, I've been involved and human trafficking, so you know I don't have like skills to be employed. You know, in this really bad situation, she went back to work in the sex industry until she was approached by, um, I believe it's a non-for-profit called Padruga, um, and it's an organization that assists women subjected to sex and drug trafficking. So they helped her out at that point, um, and currently Luisa works for Padruga herself. So what she does is she visits saunas and other places where sex trafficking might be taking place, um, and she tries to help prevent their futures from unfolding the way that hers did. Um, So she provides women with health and safety resources and information about legal aid and really, um, you know, works as an advocate. So it's, it's amazing to hear how she really turned things around, and she sounds very passionate about the work that she does now. Um, and I think, you know, this story definitely illustrates kind of all the things, um, that you were talking about, Megan, too, with just like the psychological piece of the tactics that were being used where I'm sure she was afraid of being arrested. I'm sure, Mm -hmm. you know, she was promised all of these things that didn't end up happening. And it started off very innocently of her just trying to find work to provide for her family and it escalated in such a negative way. Yeah. It's intense, like, how quickly it can happen. And again, they really do take advantage of the lack of knowledge people do have about how to get you... Because, I mean, I know a decent amount about the legal system in Illinois, but, I mean, outside of that, it's so different everywhere, and you never quite know. So it's good that there are places that are giving you know, these resources to women to help them get out sooner. Totally. Um, And yeah, like, it's scary, like, especially if you're in a different country where you don't really know what's going on, but you know that you need a job and that you need to make money. Like, I I can't imagine struggling to find work, you know, let's say, like, I visited, like, I don't know, like, Ireland or something, and I was there for work, and I was trying to find a job. I was desperate to find a job because I had been there for a while somebody offers me something you think they're being nice to you and then it turns into something else yeah intense stuff so i went purposely mine is not a human trafficking story um i decided to go i mean someone was still kidnapped so it's not like a super light story but a bit lighter no one dies um Decided to go with the kidnapping of Frank Sinatra Jr. Because I didn't really know much about this case beforehand. I had kind of heard that it had happened, but I wasn't super familiar with it. So I thought it it would be an interesting one. So on 
At 9 p.m. on Sunday, December 8th of 1963, Frank Sinatra Jr. was kidnapped after doing a show. Now, weirdly enough, this was the third plan for him to be kidnapped by his kidnappers and the first one that actually worked. Uh, The first plan was to capture Sinatra Jr. during a performance at Arizona State Fair, which collapsed. The group decided they were unprepared. They're like, nah, we're not ready. So they just scrapped that one. The date was changed to a month later when he was appearing at the Ambassador Hotel, and that plan failed because the assassination of President JFK. He was assassinated, so that got in the way. Um, But their third time they tried to kidnap him, they did do so successfully. So the ringleader was Barry Keenan. He was 23. His friend Joe Amsler, also 23. So the two of them entered the hotel before he was due to perform. So he um, was at a hotel performing with the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra at 10 p.m. Keenan entered the room where the singer and trumpet player John Foss were having dinner, claimed to have a package for him. So Sinatra Jr. was like, yeah, come on in, put the package down here. Um, Amsler was already was outside of the room. And then he came in as well. Keenan and Amsler pulled out pistols, aimed them at the pair. They... For his friend, John Foss, they bound his hands, feet, and mouth with tape, and then they took, they left him there, and they took Sinatra Jr. to an awaiting car, where he was also bound and blindfolded. He was taken to a hideaway eight hours from the kidnapping location. There was also a third member, John Irwin, who was involved, who was the Barry Keenan's mother's, I heard both boyfriend and ex-boyfriend. So he was kind of involved as well. But it was really interesting because, like, it's a very simple kidnapping. Like, it was very straightforward how they did it. And uh, they kind of botched it quite a bit. So, (coughs) um, you know, what happened from there is they kidnapped, they asked for a ransom um, from Frank Sinatra Sr., Sr., who was a quite famous singer, um, for anyone who doesn't know who Frank Sinatra is. really weird, but now you know. I mean, not not everyone's American, and we do have quite a bit of high schoolers. Yeah, that's true, that's true. Yeah. So, they asked for a... um, you know, a ransom from Frank Sinatra. It was supposed to be dropped off between two buses. Frank Sinatra worked immediately with the FBI, who was like, yeah, whenever there's a ransom, pay the full amount of the ransom. We'll do it in marked bills and we'll track down the kidnappers. And he's like, cool. So they dropped off the ransom, but it was uh, Keenan and Amsler were going to pick up the ransom and John Irwin was back with Sinatra and I guess John Irwin kind of freaked out and released Sinatra Jr. before they actually successfully got the ransom. Oh. Okay. So, the whole thing got botched. Uh, Frank Sinatra Jr. was gone for two days. Um, Luckily, he was safely returned. They did not do anything to him other than hold him. He was quite scared from the situation, but they didn't actually harm him at all. You know, it was really interesting kind of working at like, you know, they said, yeah, it was the 11th at 11 p.m. Keener and Amsler collected the cash from a gas station in Carson City, Nevada. When they returned with the cash, Sinatra Jr. was gone. 
He had been taken by Irwin, who got nervous and wanted the abduction over, to the overpass where he was released. Irwin had ruined more than the ransom exchange on taking a share of the money. He visited and boasted of his success to several relatives who immediately turned him into the FBI. Um, and they were all arrested very quickly. So, wow. Yeah. So, kind of going into... So, a couple of things about you know, Keenan, who was the ringleader of this. So interestingly, uh, they, Keenan and Amsler were both given life sentences and released after five years due to a technicality. Oh. Said it was a complicated legal situation where their sentences got tried. I don't know if it was an appeal or what exactly happened, but they did not serve time. They did serve time, but they were not in prison for that long. All were convicted. But, so they were all released from prison. And this is actually People Magazine did an interview with Keenan. Um, much later where he talks about it. So he says, I can see Junior looking at the bullets, says Keenan, now 57, recalling how he waved a revolver in the face of the singer's only son, then 20, on tour singing in nightclubs. He really, you know, he says, in my demented state, I saw it as a business deal. So he really did see this as a business exchange. So he was pretty young at the time. And, you know, it was interesting, but Keenan was friends with Sinatra's daughter, Nancy, and he had been invited to the house multiple times. So he never met Frank Sinatra Jr., but he had known the Sinatra family and figured that they would pay the ransom because they cared about their son. So that's kind of why he did this is he was totally like they thought and he planned like he thought it was okay because he was going to borrow Frank Jr. invest the ransom and repay Sinatra with interest. So he fully intended on paying them back. So, you know, some of the interesting factors about this on how exactly this happened. So, you know, obviously, like, he he thought this was a business deal. He fully planned on paying them back, which I feel like is atypical for the ransom. But Barry Keenan had become, like, one of the youngest brokers on the L.A. Stock Exchange. So he made a lot of money really, really young. Then he got into a car accident. He became addicted to painkillers. He got divorced, the stock market crashed, and he went totally broke. So he was completely broke and addicted to painkillers and not doing well. And Amsler and Irwin were all unemployed and were desperate. So they thought the ransom they asked for was $240,000 to be their savior. And he thought because of his experience in the stock exchange, he was going to invest it, turn it into way more money, pay back the Sinatras, and they would just live off of it. So kind of a weird plan. Um, but again, just yeah. psychologically, like being that desperate for money and addicted to painkillers, like you can kind of see there were some reports that he was hallucinating at the time and was delusional. Um, I could not find a whole lot about that, unfortunately, but it is mentioned. So he is saying like, yeah, but he did say in my 
demented state I saw it as a business deal. The court case was a huge media spectacle. Um, they, thanks to defense lawyer Gladys Root, um, apparently she created controversy. But her defense was that the crime was a publicity stunt ordered by Sinatra Jr. and Sr. to help Frank Sinatra Jr.'s career take off. Uh, there was sufficient evidence that Frank Sinatra Jr. had absolutely nothing to do with that. That was just a weird thing that defense made up. But again, there that this one also mentioned the revelation that Keenan appeared to be suffering mental illness involving delusions and hallucinations, which made the whole case like this huge, huge thing. But I mean, really what it comes down to is it was somebody who knew the family whose life was not going well, was having a lot of money problems and struggling deep with an addiction that for some reason justified this as a uh, quick little business deal. Just borrow Sinatra, borrow some money, pay him back, and it's totally fine. Alrighty then. And apparently Keenan went on to just make millions and be hugely successful after he left prison. And he said that Amsler always felt terrible about his involvement and it kind of haunted him. I mean, I get it. That's just, that's a crazy story. I wonder like how Frank Sinatra Jr.'s like mental health was after that happened. Like regardless if it was like botched, I mean... I'm sure that was traumatizing still. Right. I'm sure it's very traumatizing to get kidnapped, even if, you know, you're fortunate enough like he was to be kidnapped by somebody who doesn't intend on hurting you at all. Um, That seems to be, you know, it's still going to be very traumatic. Yeah, absolutely. So I just think it's interesting because they botched it. Like... So they did, they, it was an overly simple plan, which is they did not do it well. And, uh, it does sound like something that somebody who's deep in a drug addiction and desperate would come up with as a good idea. Yep. Sounds, sounds about right. Um, that's crazy. I'd never heard that story before. Yeah, I hadn't either. But you know what? No matter how bad your life is, please do not kidnap people for ransoms. I don't think it's going to help. Usually doesn't work out. No, you will just end up going to jail. Yep, 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 yep. Which most people don't find a preferable answer. So, don't kidnap people. But I thought that one was just so much lighter than the other stories I've told lately. So yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's like ridiculous, but yeah, very interesting, very interesting stuff. It is. <sighs> All right. Do you have any good shit? I have two good things. Okay. Um, the first is actually something that you our lovely listeners can do to help fight sex trafficking which is really really cool i don't know if you ever heard of it so it's an app called traffic cam it's t-r-a-f-f-i-c-k capital c-a-m and this works in a really cool way because basically sex traffickers will often advertise their victims online and there will be photos both of adults and children in posts 
and a lot of trafficking takes place in hotels. So what Traffic Cam is, is it's creating a database of pictures of hotel rooms around the world. So if you're traveling anywhere, you can download the app and you take pictures of your hotel room and you write down like, and you just tell them what hotel it is and what room it is so that law enforcement officers around the world and people who are working to fight human trafficking can look through these listings for trafficked victims and actually figure out where they're being held and rescue them. So really cool, Very really cool. simple thing that you can do if you have a smartphone. Uh, consider downloading Traffic Cam and, uh, you know, just going through and taking a bunch of pictures of your hotel room. Yeah, especially if you, like, travel for work a lot. That's a really easy way to help. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, pretty cool. Pretty cool idea of things to help. Uh, my other good thing going on in the world, less of a, you know, worldwide good thing and more of just a recommendation. But, Lauren, have you heard of the documentary Sasquatch? Yeah, I keep seeing on it Hulu. on Hulu. It is the most amazing thing I have ever seen. Like, it's genuinely perfect. or, like genuinely it's one of the best documentaries i've ever watched so it's by david holthouse and he is an amazing journalist like i am upset with him we want obsessed with him not upset with why are you so angry with this man (laughs) i'm so fucking angry about everything i'm gonna edit that correctly okay um but again i am like obsessed so he also helped produce the richard ramirez documentary on netflix that was a good one i saw that one several other ones so this is his and he's just a cool guy and basically this documentary is him diving deep into you know he in the 90s was working in kind of at a pot farm in the emerald triangle on the west coast of the united states and was there one night when somebody came into the room and said that three gentlemen had been killed by bigfoot And so the entire thing is him digging back into marijuana farms and organized crime and Bigfoot and trying to figure out what happened with these people that were murdered. And if these people were actually murdered, it's one of the best documentaries I've ever seen. Um, We immediately after watching this looked him up and watched another one of the docuseries um, that he's done. But honestly, he is... It's just really, really, really well done. Um, so the other one we watched was the Last Narc documentary, which took 14 years to make, which he also was a producer on. So he's just he's got a really interesting journalistic history um, of doing, you know, some really interesting work. He investigated hate crimes as a while, went undercover as a skinhead to, like, look into white supremacy, like, has done massive amounts of undercover work. That's hardcore shit. Yeah, and even in the Sasquatch documentary, he kind of goes into his own story of being sexually assaulted when he was seven and how that kind of inspired him to look into monsters because they're just people. Yeah. And so he does have an interesting take, but it is a weird sat like cryptozoology and true crime mixed into one hmm. three part documentary. Uh, so it was amazing. And I think everyone should watch it. Yeah. Because it is 
fascinating stuff. I'm down to check it out and see what this is about. Yeah. Um, for my good shit, um, I was trying to find it because there was something I had heard of before. But regardless, um, I did want to give a shout out to a local foundation um, that Ooh. helps um, people who have been trafficked. Um, in terms of getting rehabilitated with their mental health, um, education, because, you know, you know, when you're trafficked, like, there's a good chance you miss out on education and work opportunities and stuff like that. So it helps with skills and stuff like that. Um, it's called the Dreamcatcher Foundation. Um, and they do a lot of wonderful work and they're local. They're in Chicago. Um, they do trainings, they do a bunch of important things, um, and I originally heard them, and I hope I'm not saying the wrong thing, but I want to say they used to have, like, a cafe, um, where the money went to, like, supporting Dreamcatcher Foundation and, and supporting people who have been trafficked, um, and it was also an opportunity to help, um, women who have been trafficked um kind of have their first job and get some skills under their belt and things like that mm. so i always thought that was really cool um they might not have the cafe anymore or it might be a different program altogether but regardless i can say <laughs> that the Dreamcatcher foundation is doing um amazing work um they like i said they're doing a lot of important things to help people locally so if you're ever looking to learn more about um sex trafficking and how to support people um looks like they do trainings and that they might be a good place to donate as well yeah very cool do love to go through some of the stuff you can actually do to help mm -hmm. with these big issues absolutes so. so they're cool yeah all right. All right. Well, thank you guys for coming, listening, participating, and staying spooky. We appreciate you. Yeah, thanks. Bye. Bye.